Content warning. This episode contains discussion of violence, racism, and sexual violence. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we'll be continuing our discussion with Michelle Jacobs on the impacts of police and state violence on Black women. I'm Bhavna. And I'm Vanilla. And this is Women's Health Incarcerated. So Professor Jacobs, in recent years, there's been a growing increase in the incarceration rate of women. And while this is due to many reasons, such as expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry, there's also a great deal of over-criminalization of women due to dual arrest. The anti-violence movement's focus on law enforcement, the passage of VAWA, and the carceral feminism movement have had really damaging impacts on Black and other minority communities. But before we get into a discussion of these issues, would you mind defining for our audience what VAWA, dual arrest policies, and carceral feminism is? So VAWA, it stands for Violence Against Women Act. It's a piece of federal legislation um, that was adopted, mainly drafted by National Organization for Women Legal Defense Fund, uh, with the assistance of other mainstream white feminist organizations. The purpose of VAWA was to end the police unwillingness to act when there was a call for domestic violence. So in the past, when the police, pre-VAWA, when the police uh, received a call that there was an incident of domestic violence in a particular location, they would go out, mainly take the, usually the husband or the boyfriend, and I'll say usually because that's what the numbers show us, It doesn't mean that same-sex relationships, there can't be violence because there are. There's violence in all kinds of relationships, but the primary driver of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, as they call it today, was uh, male-based violence against the partner. Um, And so what the police would do is come out, one police officer would talk to the wife Uh, and trying to discourage her from insisting on a criminal complaint or arrest against the husband. And the other police officer would walk the husband around and say, cool down, whatever. Uh, And then they would go around about their business. And of course, when the husband comes back to the house, he's now pissed off because the wife called the police and he beats her again. The movement and domestic violence began to try to have the police be required to do something when they came out for domestic violence call. Now, at the time, advocates for women of color, particularly Black women, were arguing or encouraging the mainstream white feminists not to align themselves with law enforcement in order to solve the issues of violence in the home, because they realized that's not going to be effective for communities of color. Right? When the police come to a Black woman's home, they're not going to be looking at her in the same way that they're looking at this fragile white woman who has called the police, right? They're going to be looking at the black woman as some kind of man-type creature, go back to our first you know, stereotype, who's in there fighting with another man, right? Mutual combatants is the phrase that the police and the courts use. So at any rate, uh, the mainstream white women's movement um, decided that Interacting with the police was the best way to get 
violence to end within the home. And so VAWA required that the police do something when they come to a home where domestic violence has been reported uh, and that they would do a mandatory arrest. Now, the whole mandatory arrest thing was based on a study, a preliminary study that was done that looked at a very small sample of uh, whether or not when there was an arrest, would that positively impact uh, reduction in the rate of violence in the household. The authors of the study themselves cautioned against using the study to support mandatory arrests. Nonetheless, the mainstream white feminists, mostly led by former prosecutors, women who were former prosecutors and many of them in domestic violence units at the prosecutor's office, took this study and ran with it and argued for mandatory arrests, and that's what was reflected in the VAWA legislation. Of course, the Black women, the Latinas, and the Asian women all knew, and do we even, should we even talk about Native American women who don't get the protection of law at all, period, <laughs> right? I mean, they all knew that this was not going to end up well in their communities. And so uh, even though people discouraged the connection between uh, anti-violence movement and law enforcement, nonetheless, they went forward with the pairing under the VAWA Act. Under the act, the police got resources in order to improve their response to domestic violence. The various different mainstream white feminist groups got money from the federal government to do their work. uh, And everyone was happy except the women from the communities of color who were now being mandatorily arrested <laughs> when the police came out to the house, right? Because again, when the police come to these com- communities, they don't think about Black women as being victims. Um, and I'll just mention it just in passing, but the same thing was true for Latinas because one of the stereotypes about Latinas is that they're fiery, Right. Uh, and that they're always carrying knives. <laughs> For some reason, uh, the stereotype about Latinas is that they have knives. Uh, and so, you know, when the police go to their communities, they weren't getting, you know, the protection as well. So in some jurisdictions, what would happen is the police would come out, and of course, they're annoyed because this law requires them to make an arrest. And so what they would do is say, fine, we'll, we'll arrest both parties. And that's what's known as dual arrest, right? So... Uh, Your neighbors call the police because they hear a fight going on inside the house or the woman gets to a phone and she calls the police. The police arrive. They arrest both people saying they're unable to determine who the primary aggressor is. So what we found is that, of course, as could be expected, black women were being arrested in the dual arrest context. Now, as the studies turned out, lesbian women were also being arrested in the dual arrest context, which should make sense if people thought this out thoroughly because they are not behaving in gender normative kinds of ways. And so the mainstream white women's movement did try to address the dual arrest situation, particularly when they became aware that white lesbians were being arrested as a result of it. Um, And some states, they actually uh, advocated to end dual arrest but we don't have the end of dual arrest in all jurisdictions. Um, So we do still have some jurisdictions where dual arrest occurs. And of course, 
Black and Lat Latinas are going to be the ones who are arrested in those dual arrest contexts. In other jurisdictions, they force the police to do what's called a primary aggressor determination to see who actually was the aggressor in the domestic violence context. Now, if you go back to your stereotypes about mutual combatants and Black women not being women, if you have the police who arrive at a household, the husband or the, the significant other has punched the woman in her chest, okay? That bruise is going to take a day or so to manifest itself. If she slaps him or scratches him in response to the punch, that hand mark is going to be apparent on the face or the scratch is going to be apparent on the face immediately. And when the police come, they're gonna look at that scratch of their hand mark and they're gonna reach the conclusion that the woman is the primary aggressor and she will be arrested. And that's exactly what happens, particularly for black women who are seen as combatants, right? So the police don't have any problem reaching the determination that they are aggressors and that they are the ones who should be arrested. So the Violence Against Women Act hasn't really <laughs> worked to the benefit of Black women or Latinas. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that. And I think uh, Donna Coker, who's a professor at the University of Miami Law School, was the first of the mainstream feminists to come out and admit that the advocates for women of color have been right for the whole time and that the mainstream white women's feminists should have paid more attention to it. There's, there are many more people paying attention to it now, but uh, mainstream white feminists still isn't. And so let, that takes us very nicely into the carceral feminism uh, aspect of it. So Professor Beth Ritchie, who is a scholar at the University of Illinois and an activist, uh, she's very much involved in the abolition movement wrote a book in 2012. So in the book, Professor Ritchie does an excellent job of tracing how mainstream white feminism changed the discussion of intimate partner violence such that it appeared that it primarily impacted white women. Um, and by doing that, they were able to go to Congress and sell this idea that Congress should be on board with passing this Violence Against Women Act and being against domestic violence because this is something that could happen to their sisters, their daughters, their mothers. And that they were successful in doing that and that the alliance with law enforcement actually opened up the coffers to uh, financing for these mainstream feminist movements, right? So that they could get money do their fight against intimate partner violence and completely ignore the fact that their approach to dealing with intimate partner violence led black and brown women to prison, right? So the whole idea about carceral feminism is that these are feminists who insist on very strict punishment for all violence against women. They want maximum sentences, and they want everybody prosecuted to the nth degree, right? So people have been arguing for some years now 
that the white feminists need to do an intersectional analysis, right? And this is where Kimberly Crenshaw's work comes in, okay, because it's not just about being a woman, it's also being about a woman of color for many of us. And that if you don't do that intersectional analysis, the policies that you advocate for will actually send black and brown women to prison. They may not send white women to prison, but they're gonna send black and brown women to prison. Um, and it's it's been a hard fight because mainstream white women, at least according to Professor Ritchie, and I think the reality of it has shown her to be true, are benefiting financially from this alliance with law enforcement. Um, and so their feminist approach to criminal justice has led to a heightened incarceration for black and brown women. And you, we do get some uh, women's organizations who are backing away from that. They are mainly the ones who deal with incarcerated women because they, right, their population is actually impacted by, by the carceral feminist theories uh, or policies. And so you, you do see women fighting back about that. And of course, some of the more radical feminist groups have been fighting against that. So, uh, but the mainstream white feminist movements still have refused to back down from that relationship with law enforcement in order to solve uh, violence against women. Um, and, you know, it's just crazy on so many levels because violence against women is not a legal issue. It's a cultural issue, right? Yes, law uh, can regulate what happens to you when you've been found to have violated the law, but why did you, why did you violate the law? And again, this is a, when we're talking about cultural problems like racism, like gendered violence, you can't just pass a statute and expect for that to change. It's, it's not that, it's the behavior of the people. It's that that behavior is rooted in how they live, how they exist. And so until you can get to that, why, is, why do you feel entitled to sexually assault a woman? Why do you feel entitled to hit a woman? Well, you feel entitled because you're president. <laughs> the president of the United States says it's okay to sexually assault women, particularly if you're rich and famous. You can do it because you can do it, right? This is the struggle we have over the Kavanaugh appointment to the Supreme Court. When, when white men sexually assault uh, women, it's boys being boys, right? But if you have a black man who sexually assaults a woman, well, you want him to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and you want him to be sent to prison forever. So no, it can't, it can't be both ways, right? If, if these behaviors are culturally based, if they're embedded in how we behave as people, incarceration can't possibly resolve that. And we know that's true because we see people as young as 12 and 13 years old having uh, relationships where violence is already normative. That's not a prison problem. That's a cultural, community, educational, mental health problem. So carceral feminism refuses to acknowledge any of that. An organization my daughter used to work for that counseled young people, some, as, as I say, as young as 12, who are already in uh, relationships with intimate partner violence. The, the clients wouldn't want the partners to be sent to jail or to prison. And all of the lawyers for the organization were white, white females, and told her, we don't care what the clients want, we're gonna put him under the jail. Uh, so my daughter said, well, don't, you know, 
Black Lives Matters and intersectionality. You know, she's saying all the buzzwords. And the lawyer said, we don't care about that. He's going under the jail. Right. So it's a refusal of the white feminist community, mainstream white feminist community, to look at these issues from any other lens other than their own. And yet they take the podium to speak for all women who are experienced violence, but they only are talking about policies that impact them, not the rest of the women who are experiencing violence. So it's, it's so the carceral feminism issue has become very serious, um, but you know it's reaching down because there's a white scholar who last week sent out an announcement on a listserv for organizations that deal with incarcerated women uh, and she's written a book in 2020 that talks about carceral feminism. And it's just like, okay, yes, <laughs> Beth Ritchie wrote the book eight years ago <laughs> and we're still dealing with it. But, you know, so whatever. Change is, is slow. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, the mainstream white feminist movement refuses to take themselves out of the center of the lens, which in this area leads to Black women being incarcerated. Clearly, policing and the incarceration system are, of course, incredibly intertwined. What parallels have you seen between police brutality and the violence that women experience in prisons and jails? So, of course, if Black women on the street are invisible, you know that Black women in prison... (laughs) Can you be less than invisible? I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to make up a, a word for that. But um, so this is a terrible problem because once you enter into the prison system, one, you cease to exist for your community on a certain level, and two, no one thinks about you as a victim. Most people will think, well, if you went to prison, it's because you did something, right? But the fact of the matter is women in prison are subject to violence at the hands of the state every single day. You have men watching you while you shower. You have men watching you while you go to the bathroom. You have men who can strip search you for any and every reason, including the official ones. You had a visit, you know, you went to another building, you saw a doctor, whatever. When you come back, you have to be strip searched. You have prison guards who force you to have sex and those who coerce you to have sex. So if you have a telephone call, if your time to use the telephone to call your family is coming up and the prison guard doesn't want you to be able to do that unless you uh, give them some kind of reward, like maybe a blowjob, then you don't get to call your family or you don't get to have a visit, or you don't get to go to class, right? Or all these ways that the prison guards can control what a woman can do inside the prison. Now, of course, later on, if you should complain uh, about sexual misbehavior, the guard can always say she consented because it's, it's not that they use physical force to make you have the sex, it's that they use the emotional control in order to make you have the sex, right? So uh, we have that going on. So we have the sexual exploitation. We have the physical violence of pulling hair, punching, slapping, knocking people down. We have the emotional violence. You didn't respond fast enough. You talk back to me, you're going to solitary confinement. 
the levels of violence against women in the prison are extreme. But again, this is a population that we simply uh, don't see. If you go into a correctional facility as a young girl, let's say you have a two-year sentence, you go in there, you're not pregnant, but a year later, you're two months pregnant. <laughs> that means someone, some adult person who's a male inside your detention facility has sex with you. Um, and, and these things are not rare occurrences. They happen. Human Rights Watch once did a study on the conditions of uh, girls in juvenile detention and found that it was a human rights abuse, uh, what was happening to them. And they documented incidents of sexual abuse and all other kinds of uh, psychological torture and so forth that happens inside the prison. So um, we, we have a crisis going on inside of the prisons uh, that women are experiencing. So yes, that's what we have, whatever we see out on the street those things are happening within the prison and even worse because you can't video it with your phone and make it go viral, right? This is just your everyday, day in and day out life that you're experiencing at the hands of law enforcement, also known as corrections officers. So it's a, it's a terrible problem. So in addition to the dual arrests, uh, primary aggressor situation, we also have women, uh, black women who are in prison because they survived domestic violence, right? They had a violent abuser and they killed that person or they stabbed that person or whatever the case may have been, or they had an abuser who uh, forced them to do other kinds of crimes in order to alleviate some of the abuse that they were experiencing, and they went to prison for that. So in addition to being a victim of abuse, you're now trapped, right, in a place where you are going to be abused every single day. So I don't want people to forget about those Black women who are in prison because they chose not to be killed by their abuser. Uh, Centoya Brown is a great example of that. The young lady who was just recently released from prison, um, she was convicted when she was 16 because she killed the guy who was trafficking her, right? And they sent her to prison for that. So uh, I just, just want to make sure that we recognize that those women are in prison as well. They survived domestic violence and now they're being punished for having survived. So they're there as well too. So what would you say to those who believe in carceral law as the solution to these issues of sexual violence? And what alternative policies do you believe can improve protections for Black survivors without harming them or their communities? It's very clear that the prison system, the police do not interrupt violence. And what we really need to be thinking about is how to interrupt violence to make our communities safer. And I think this is what the whole idea behind uh, both defund the police and the abolition movement is about. How do we think about our communities in new ways, right? Completely different ways, not tweaking what has already existed, not reforming little corners of what already exists, but can we sit down and imagine a completely different system, right? Um, so that 
prison doesn't have to be the answer for if you're if you have mental health issues or if you're poor and you stole something or uh, if you're in a situation where you're experiencing violence. Can we create situations that alleviate those tensions so that you don't have to go do something that violates social norms and go to prison? So, of course, the drawback always is how can you do that and still have women be safe? And I have to admit that this this is an issue I think about a lot <laughs> because as a as a former uh, defender, I know that there are a few people out there who hurt people regularly and intentionally, and they they can be dangerous to the community. So, as I've been talking to you, that has always been my concern. Now. In preparation for today, <laughs> I went up on uh, uh, abolitionjournal.org uh, to familiarize myself better with some of Miriam uh, Kaba's work because, you know, she's in the forefront of the abolitionist movement. Um, and someone did a Q&A with her and asked, well, what about the serial killer Ted Bundy? You know, should we not have prison for him? And her answer was, was interesting and I had to reflect on it. Because she said, why do you always pick out Ted Bundy, who is the exception to the criminal justice system, in order to explain why we should continue to build the criminal justice system in the way that we have? Why don't we build a system that reflects what we normally encounter and then have a a way to deal with the outliers like Ted Bundy, people who hurt repeatedly, right? And can't seem to be diverted from hurting. But why would we build our entire system on Ted Bundy when we know that he is an outlier? So I had to pause and think about that for a while because um, I, I hear some truth in that, right? So the, the, the point is that we have to do the very hard work of reimagining what a just system would look like when prison wasn't the center of the system. You know, that's challenging for those of us who have made our livelihoods in the criminal justice system because it's, it's what we know. But I also heard uh, a woman speak about her lifelong effort to reform the criminal justice system, right? She wasn't at the point where she was thinking remake the system. She was thinking, okay, well, she was a proponent, uh, an early proponent and supporter of drug courts. And um, what do they have now? The mental health courts and, you know, all the ones like that. And she said, yeah, in the beginning, I, I, I love those things and I really advocated for them. Um, but what I didn't anticipate is that the system is built to run in a certain way. And when you tweak the corners or when you make changes to the system, the system will react to those changes and adjust so that it can continue to run <laughs> the way it always has run. And we see if we see this happening, of course, in the cash bail situation where states said, okay, we're going to do something good. We're going to get rid of cash bail so that more people can get out on their own recognizance uh, and don't have to suffer pretrial detention, right? Um, and people are like, yeah, that, that, that works because the people who are in pretrial detention are poor people. It's not that they are going to run away or not come back. It's just that they don't have the money to post a cash bail. All right. So states went to that. 
And the bail bondsmen and law enforcement immediately tried to undermine the elimination of cash bail. And most jurisdictions went to algorithmic systems of assessing flight or or, uh, dangerousness. And of course, if you dig underneath that, we know that algorithms are based on racist notions about who commits crime. And so you end up in a system where more people were being detained than when they were under the cash bail system. Uh, And it's because the system adjusted itself so that it could continue to incarcerate black and brown people, remove them from their communities, and you know, make sure that they weren't a threat politically or economically. So she now took the position that the whole system has to be redone. And I was like, okay, <laughs> here's a person who admits that they were a lifelong advocate for reform. And after all these years, they've realized reform is not gonna work because the system was built to lock up black and brown bodies. And so if we're gonna get rid of that, we have to have a different kind of system. And that's the real challenge. You know, when you've been presented with a reality your entire life, how can you turn around and say, well, what other kind of realities are out there? Yeah, that's a very challenging question to ask. But I think this is what people are asking us to do now, and I hope people will, will start doing that. What do you suggest as solutions or actions that individuals can take at the local or state level to improve these issues? So we've talked about a whole broad variety of social ills during the two parts of this. Um, And at the very first level, people need to educate themselves on what the issues are. We're so, so very ignorant about what goes on in the criminal justice system, mainly because we all believe we're not going to be caught up in it. But as you can see from Oregon, it doesn't take much <laughs> for some for someone else to make the determination that you're going to get caught up in it. What I always tell my students is no person in prison today woke up on the day they were arrested and said, today is a good day to get arrested. <laughs> right? They may have engaged in some decision making that led them to get arrested that day. But when they got up that morning, they weren't thinking they were going to end the night. <laughs> in a cell. So, uh, you know, how you get involved and when you get involved in the criminal justice system is sometimes not of your own choosing. So we all need to be educated. Pick any of the issues. If you think uh, women in prison is an issue, educate yourself on that. If you think Black women getting killed by the police is an issue, educate yourself on that. If you think Black women getting raped by the police is an issue, educate yourself on that. Educate yourself, right? Don't rely on what someone else's perception of the um, situation is. And it doesn't cost anything to educate yourself. For those of you who can, uh, you should pick an organization or a couple of organizations, research them. um, And if you like the work that they're doing, support them financially. Many of the organizations that are doing the best kind of work are grassroots organizations. They can't necessarily absorb you know, 200 volunteers to do their work because they're small entities. But if you like the work they're doing and you can afford to do it, cut them a check, send them a, what do you young people use, Venmo? (laughs) Use your digital wallet and send them some money so that they can continue to do the good work that they're doing. Now, everybody can't give donations and that's real. Um, But... You all have elected officials 
at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level, although those people are less useful today than they used to be. Um, so I'm, I'm really focused now on telling people, start at your local level. What is your mayor that you voted for saying about police accountability? What is your mayor saying about whether or not they know anything about whether the police officers on your police force are raping women? Are the police on your police force killing Black people or Latinos or any other uh, outside group that might be in your area? If you live out West, it might be Indigenous people, right? What do your, does your mayor and your city council or your town freeholders, what are they doing about that? What do they think about decertifying police officers who have uh, committed offenses? Do they even know how the police are regulated? Right. These are questions that you can ask in your interactions with interactions with your local elected officials. Um, what's your budget for your city and how is that budget spent? Do you even know where your tax dollars go? Do they go to something that you're supporting? Because maybe it's possible that when they have those hearings that are public on the budget, maybe you should go to the hearings and try to figure out what's going on in your city. And you can repeat that at your state level. Who are, who, who are your state elected officials? Do you even know who you voted for? Um, and what is their position on some of these issues? And I think, I think we've really forgotten in the United States that it's the voters who have the power. We've been taught over these last few administrations that voters don't have any power, but you do have the power. And I think that's one of the great things about the 60s when I was young, <laughs> that people realized they did have the power. They had the power to fight against uh, Jim Crow law. They had the power to fight against the war in Vietnam. They had the power to fight against nuclear armament. And they did that. And it achieved results. So people have to stop absolving themselves of responsibility for how poorly government is run. Because if government is run poorly, it's because you yourself have not participated in the civic engagement that keeps democracy strong. Last thing I would say is uh, watch your local media. Are they covering the issues that you think are important that need to be covered? If they're not, call your local TV station and ask them, why haven't you run any stories on Breonna Taylor being killed? Right? Why aren't you running any stories? People are dying of COVID right and left. Why haven't you covered what is happening in the prisons with people dying from COVID? It's still COVID. And if that's all the news that you can cover, because you know how the media is, they can only cover one thing at a time. So if you can only cover COVID, put in, include in your COVID coverage what is happening in the prisons. Not just the adult men's facilities, but the adult women's facility and the facilities where our children are. What is happening regarding COVID infections and deaths inside the prison? You see, and media has not been held accountable, and people can do that. You can hold media accountable. So, you know, it's that, and it's decide that you're going to be an agent of change, right? Pick something in your zone, no matter what it is. A lot of my friends are old now, so they don't want to go outside because they're worried about catching coronavirus, which is, hey, legitimate. Cut a check. <laughs> Send some money. Call your elected official. Send an email. Write a letter. 
Um, but everybody can do something in their own zone. Everyone has to do what they can do to protect our democracy and to make sure that we can end up at some point in someone's life, maybe my great-grandchildren's lives, <laughs> where we have an actual, a real just society. So that's, that's what I'm fighting for. Uh, old as I am, still going, but <laughs> I'm just encouraging all people. We have to fight for democracy and we have to fight for justice, and that's what it's about. Professor Jacobs, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. As Professor Jacobs articulates, the emphasis of law enforcement in handling domestic disputes through the enactment of VAWA and the carceral feminism movement have had detrimental impacts on women of color in our society. Ignoring the intersectionality of race, gender, and other identities regarding these issues have led to the overcriminalization of black and brown women. Recentering the focus on making communities safer by shifting funding from police to mental health and community supports, rather than looking towards incarceration as the solution to physical and sexual violence issues, can avoid additional harm to black and brown women. Tune in next week for our final episode series of this season, where we speak with a special guest from the ACLU on the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on incarcerated people, their families, their communities, and our society as a whole. Until then. Women's Health Incarcerated works to raise awareness about the experiences of women within our current incarceration system, with a primary focus on health-related issues. The podcast can be found on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you want to learn more about our episodes, view the transcripts to see where we get our information, or find different ways that you could get involved, please visit www.winkthemovement.org. That's www.whincthemovement.org. Thank you.